This is Increment Vice. The podcast that explores Paul Thomas Anderson's inherent vice, one scene at a time, with your host, Travis Woods. As we return once more to the craggy, cauliflowered, eared, and swastiched face of Puck Beaverton, so too are we paid a visit by an old increment vice pal, just one more time. And when two chatty Cathy's like Travis and Jordan get together, well... Let's just not expect a whole heck of a lot of structure to this episode, okay, gang? If a character's name isn't Doc Sportello, Shasta Faye Hepworth, or Bigfoot Bjornsson, they tend to only pop up once or twice in Inherent Vice. They're to steer Doc this way or that way in his multitude of cases, or to add a thematic resonance or two, or to shade a scene with something tonally different, or sometimes all of the above. Point is though, almost all of them exist as more or less cameos in Doc's case against the Golden Fang with the missing husband and the not so missing ex-old lady and her millionaire boyfriend. One exception to that rule, however, is one Puck Beaverton. Played by the retired MMA fighter, the Dean of Mean Keith Jardine, Puck keeps showing up in the warnings of Jade, the witness reports of Bigfoot, the stories of Clancy Sharlock, spotted by Doc at the Criscylodone Institute with a Shasta tie around his neck, and finally here at the offices of one Adrian Prussia. And just like Puck, turning up again like a bad penny is a former guest today. And it makes sense that this is how and where and when this former guest would make his return as he's a big softy when it comes to both the Dean of Mean and California white supremacists. Well, <laughs> Both of which more or less drops him dead center in the Venn diagram of Puck Beaverton fandom. <laughs> I, that's a lovely introduction, Travis. I think I'd like to like a big softy when it comes to big white power. Softy when that? it comes to white power. Yeah, well, you prefer white power as a term, sure. The Edgar Award winning author of She Rides Shotgun and Love and Other Wounds, a writer for Hightown, as well as the Too Good for This Fucking World LA Confidential TV series, which I still think about daily. Mr. Jordan Harper, thanks for coming back. Uh, thank, thanks for having me. Um, I... I do not like white power. <laughs> you know, I don't think anyone thinks that uh, I was being serious. No, that. I know, I know. Uh, um, white, white power gangs do figure into a lot of your fiction. Absolutely, absolutely. And I am the type of person who will read a 45-page indictment of the Aryan Brotherhood um, to, to glean nice little quotes and, and tips and trivia and nicknames. That's one of the best things about uh, reading indictments, uh, particularly RICO indictments, is uh, a RICO indictment will list everybody who's charged on the first few pages. And if you're looking to get some some uh, Puck Beaverton-like nicknames for somebody, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, that's where you're going to learn that the biggest guy in a white power gang, they might call him the Vanilla Gorilla. Um, 
And uh, <laughs> we shouldn't be laughing. I, can I laugh at that? Yeah, sure. <laughs> Am you I can. allowed? There is a no. I, uh, I I'm fascinated with them. I, I I don't think I told this story last time. Uh, so we're both. Uh, we did last time I was on the podcast. Spent a lot of time talking about the Ozarks and Springfield, where we're both Missouri, from. Where we're both from. Um, when we were coming up, uh, I don't know if you ever uh, had this problem. Uh, Springfield, Missouri was the national headquarters of the Hammerskin Nation, mm -hmm. uh, which was one of the nastiest white power uh, gangs, at least in the 90s. I have no idea what they're like now. Um, and so my older brother uh, ran the punk rock club in Springfield for a period of time. He opened up a little punk rock venue uh, called Harper's Bazaar. And uh, he and I and everybody else, you know, we try and keep the Nazis out. Um, that's what you do when you run a punk club in a place like Springfield is you, you try and, and, uh, and keep the Nazis out. And, uh, at, at one point the Nazis got mad enough at him to, uh, uh, catch him at a different club at a Reverend Horton heat show and, uh, and put him in the hospital. Jesus Christ. And yeah, uh, broke beer bottles over his head and, and things like that. And so it's always been, you know, uh, a, a point of interest to me. Like uh, they've always been like the villains. Um, but I do think, and where I do totally understand what you're saying is I don't believe that just because they're always the villains in a lot of what I write, that you should write them or portray them as just like these cardboard cutouts because that's really boring and also just not true. Like they're bad people often. Well, they're bad people, but like you, you have to try and find something in that and, and reasons for them being that way or else you're just writing, you know, a cartoon. Exactly. I, and I agree. And, and, and again, everybody out there, I'm only kidding. Uh, <laughs> it's not like right before the show, Jordan told me the only way he can become aroused is by reading the 45 page indictments of white power uh, gang members and criminals. He didn't tell me that. He really I didn't. Did I, I really didn't. He didn't. He actually. I did not tell him that. Oh, man. <laughs> How much of this intro are we gonna have to delete? Do you think? I, I don't know, man. I, it's like uh, it's just you always want those like those little those. Uh, I don't know what the you call an audio screen grab. I guess an audio clip. Uh, you just don't want that audio clip going around <laughs> of me going. The thing about white power that people don't get is <laughs> it's just oh, we're in know, trouble. Mm -hmm. Wow, it only took what like five minutes for us to tank this episode. That's not nice. Bad. I mean, we haven't even watched this... the clip yet. No, oh my, oh god, no, we're 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 hours away from that at this point. <laughs> um, so it's a it's a but it's a good way into this episode because I think that one of the things that I think is so interesting about inherent vice, and I was actually thinking about this recently because it's a totally totally different kind of a work of art. But I was watch I was rewatching Breaking Bad recently mm -hmm. because there's literally nothing else to do anymore. Uh, I was, so I was rewatching Breaking Bad and I was, again, once again, enthralled of this story of this, 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 this man's ruination of himself and everything that he loves and how you go through that amazing fourth season where it's, it's, it's Walt versus Gus and there's this, this Kubrickian chilliness and it's like this, it's almost Michael Mann level uh, gamesmanship mm -hmm. to the, it, where you have one of television's finest most compelling, most artfully drawn and interesting and cipher-like and fascinating big bads in the form of Gus. And then you follow it up with some swastika-necked hillbillies from the mm -hmm. desert as your follow-up. And I remember the first time I watched Breaking Bad, I was a little let down by that. I was like, 
because I'm, I'm almost, you're almost in that mode of, okay, each season we're leveling up, we're hitting a new level of power. And so season five, it's going to be someone even be, it's going to be some cartel shit, even bigger than Gus, some, just some, just something out of like Ridley Scott's The Counselor or something like that, like just some philosophizing madman with, with all the power in the world. And no, it's, it's a bunch of desert hillbillies that were probably kicked out of uh, some other AP organization. So they formed their own little squirrely mm-hmm. ass ragtag group. And there, the second time through that I watched, I, it became so much more compelling just because of how sad it is and how real it is and how that, that bad taste in your mouth, that, that, that scumminess of them has always kind of been a part of the, I'm going to get pretentious here, the American story. And mm-hmm. it actually kind of shaded how I rewatched this movie because I was like, of course, if you're doing a, if you're going to watch a movie that is diagnosing so many of the post mid-century ills of this country, these, these head shaved vanilla gorillas, they'd have to be a part of that story because they're always fucking there lurking around the corners. They're, they're always there. They, they are always there. And, uh, and yeah, I agree with you both about what you're saying about Breaking Bad and, and that it is, I guess it's, it's more, it's not that they go to a more powerful villain. They just go to a, an even more amoral villain. Sure. And you watch him kind of drop down until like, these are the only losers left in the world that he can really do business with. Um, yeah. Which by the way, is, is really the truth about a lot of white power gangs is, um, it's a bunch of losers. And, you know, uh, if, if you do research about how to, how to get people out of these gangs or out of these situations, a lot of times the answer is like, they just need other friends. Like literally they just need other friends. And that's something you see, like, I mean, look, American History X is not a great movie, but like in the movie American History X, it's literally just like, oh, a black guy is nice to him. And, and all of a sudden he's not racist anymore. It's a really problematic movie. I'm not saying there's any accuracy to that. I'm just saying there is a, a very basic truth of like, you know, people tend to wind up in these situations not from their first choice. It's not like, well, I'm either going to take a Harvard MBA or become a white power skinhead, um, which is very different than the actual, like, the thing about white power skinheads is, get this audio clip it feels good. Um, it's <laughs> you like are, you, know, you are about 30 seconds away from getting canceled just <laughs> brace yourself there is there is a difference between somebody who has a swastika tattoo and and almost no power in their lives yeah and the people who run white power organizations um and end up getting jobs at the white house you know like those two venn <laughs> diagrams don't really cross a whole lot yeah and, you know, to talk about uh, what we're going to talk about, you know, um, there was a huge radical prison movement in California in the 60s and 70s. And most of those were leftist progressive in, in at least the beginning. The Black Gorilla family at least had some intention of like the Black Panther Party being a left-wing organization. Um, whereas the Aryan Brotherhood, which came up as a response to those, is truly a, a reactive or reactionary organization. Um, but they don't have that much in common with, you know, your William Pierce's or, you know, your Stephen Miller's. Um, <laughs> because they don't have any power at the end yeah. of the day. Um, and again, that doesn't excuse them or anything like that, but that's why I can write about them in a much more interesting way than somebody who I think, you know, drives a Mercedes and, and has power in this country and also is a white power person that person 
well, fuck that guy. That's all I got to say. Yeah, fuck that guy. Wow, we're really getting. Just... We're 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 going places, you and I. Like we are going places already. <laughs> well, we've been, you know, we've been locked up la- for a while. Yeah, it's true. I mean, at least in the last episode, we we spent a good twenty minutes talking about the best eating of the Ozarks, and uh, that's true. But uh, we we're just getting right to it right now. You know, we're, it didn't take us long this time to get to the prison gangs, which is where it always <laughs> goes eventually. It always gets to the prison gangs. Well, they are just particularly when you're talking about California crime, they're just fascinating organizations. It is. I mean, it's. You know, it's funny. We were talking off air about a certain TV show that we're not going to name uh, and its treatment of race-based games, um, games, gangs, almost like a board game, like where yeah. it's just different colors and like you, you call them by the color. And it's just it's just it's a very reductive, almost like eight year old version of of what crime syndicates are. But I also think that that's kind of in a weird way what can make uh, something like the California prison gang system so fascinating and interesting is it kind of does that on its own where yeah. it's almost like the lines are so clearly drawn. It is, it's, it's something, it's almost like it's pure narrative. It's pure narrative that you're able to follow and mythology that you're able to follow. I'm not saying it's good. I'm not saying it's cool. Uh, and I, and I, 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 I do find it interesting because we are going to actually make this somewhat marginally about inherent vice, I, I find it fascinating that of all of the threads that do work into the film that or and, and into the book, that this is something that Pinchon did place dead center in his story were the, the black gorilla family and the white, the, the, the Aryan brotherhood, which you did point out, you pointed out that this is not the most date appropriate placement for these gangs. But I, I think it's that, that kind of, that kind of, uh, again, let's get pretentious, we'll do that pretentious thing where we'll say a word and we'll put American in front of it. So it sounds really smart. That kind of American schism yeah. uh, of race and crime with, with puck on one side, very much on one side. I, I don't know. I think it, I think that there's something to that. And I think that there is something narratively powerful about that. And I think it is very interesting that Pinchon chose to include that in a story that is about more or less handicapping and investigating and declaring what the the rot is at the heart of the american soul that has mm-hmm. undone so much from doc's time to right now and i think it's very interesting that he chose to include characters like puck beaverton in that diagnosis no i i think that's a, like an excellent point and it's it's you're right in that the the movie doesn't really delve too much into anything i would call you know real crime or gritty crime no. Well, except for maybe uh, this scene. Except for maybe this scene. That's right. And and you know, there's a couple of little things we can we can tease out about it. Um, but it is such an essential part of not just America, but I, obviously this is uh, both a book and a film about America. But it's also about Los Angeles. Yeah. And about Southern California and what an incredible, uh, you know, uh, mishmash of like racial segregation and then racial desegregation and. Uh, did I talk about this last time? I, I, we don't have to get into it if I did. Did I talk about the 50 street gang? Oh, yeah, we went there. We went there. Okay. Then we oh, we to, went we, there. We don't need to go there again. Uh, as as just, you and I often do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> as, as we do. Love to talk about racist 1950s well, uh, street gangs. Before we dive too deeply uh, into, the, I think, the elements that flow into this scene proper, let's, let's circle back around. It's been a minute. 
we're going to, what we're going to do is we're going to pretend like you and I don't talk every single week. We're going to, mm-hmm. we're going to pretend like we don't. And it's like, Hey, mm-hmm. we're seeing each other for the first time since that last, that last episode back in November, back in the before time where things were marginally better. Mm-hmm. Uh, things were, we were at least able to go outside and breathe air and not panic when we did that. Right. Uh, so, so last time you were here, it was, it was like an episode of some personal revelations and vivisections for you in that uh, you began by making it clear you're kind of an outlier in modern film circles and that you will actually allow yourself to be lukewarm on things. Mm-hmm. That you, you're, you're not someone, something, you're, not, you're not someone that has to, with, with, with bile and blood spew and hate, tear a film apart if it doesn't work for you. Just like you don't have to hyperbolically love it so deeply that you create a 45-episode podcast all about it. Uh, you're, you're, you're allowed to, for some things, you've said you, some things are just fine to you. Yeah. And uh, one of the things you admitted while coming on a podcast about inherent vice is you're like, you know, PTA more or less doesn't really do it for you as a filmmaker. There's just something there. There's a remove where you can even say that, hey, I know the Coen brothers are more or less doing the exact same thing that X PTA movie is doing, but I, I just don't care. I don't feel it. You'd also admitted that you'd never seen The Master or Magnolia, that you'd seen There Will Be Blood on TV once, and mm-hmm. that your takeaway was, that's some good shots. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's a pretty good movie. It's okay. You, you, it's were like, you were like, it's okay. It's got some good shots. And you had actually never seen Inherent Vice uh, prior to doing that episode. You watched it for that episode. And, and, and your takeaway was it was pretty good that you would watch it again. And I, I love that your last compliment was, you thought the costumes were good. You like you, <laughs> the no, they were. They, they were. So we're gonna go down that list. Go. We're gonna go backwards. Uh, have you? Did you? Have you caught the master? I mean, you have no excuse not to. You've you've been quarantined for months now. Did have you seen the master of Magnolia since we spoke? This is gonna sound so cryptic. This is gonna sound so cryptic. Like something. I actually have master. a really good reason why I haven't seen Magnolia or the Master since we've talked that I can't say on air. <sighs> you know what you know what i actually you know i i remember the reason too um you, we've actually you know what you're right we have we talked about this one night <laughs> on a long drive to a, a david lynch double feature and i well shit now i feel, I feel bad for saying that all right well, <laughs> no because uh, i like i like uh, if you don't know me personally you could spend a thousand years trying to figure out what mysterious reason that could possibly be yeah okay fine. And, and, and i think that'll be fun for the audience at home it's a fun little it's a little easter egg a little jordan harper <laughs> easter egg <laughs> um well let me ask you this go ahead i mean you are doing you are doing the show again I, and, and again i must say I, I appreciate as i said off air i appreciate you taking the time to come to a podcast for a movie that you are mar- you have marginal interest in right. <laughs> but what else are you going to do right now i mean really i mean you can't turn me down no, that's um, true. I, look, no, it's always a pleasure. You know, uh, love to do podcasts. Love to do podcasts with you. Um, look, I'm like everybody else in America. I've gone out. I've bought a longboard. You know, I've rewatched ten seasons of RuPaul's Drag Race and three seasons of RuPaul's Drag Race All Stars since March, like all Americans have. Um, you know, <laughs> I've re- I've read you know three books in the last you know, five months like the rest of America. Oh, I've, uh, sure. I've, uh, I've not gotten what I would call fat 
but I have gotten to a place where like half my pants don't fit anymore, like the rest of America. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, I've spent a, a lot of time uh, re rewriting the first 20 pages of the novel, like the rest of America has. <laughs> like the rest of America has. So I haven't had a lot of time um, to watch movies that aren't on, you know, my movie clubs that I have, like the rest of America. I'm doing that thing where once a week I watch an art house film that's under a hundred minutes long and talking about it with my friend, Brian Hennigan, like the rest of America is. Um, <laughs> so I have not, since we last uh, recorded a podcast, watched a uh, P.T. Anderson movie. So you haven't rewatched Inherent Vice yet either. Even for I, this I, I watched chunks of Inherent Vice. Chunks. Uh, chunks. chunks. <laughs> Let's see what we're talking about. Well, that's a chunk, not chunk plural. That's well, I mean, and I, I, I hopped around a little bit. I, <laughs> you know, I, was I feel scrolling. like I'm putting you on trial this episode. I feel like you know, you've, you're you've scrolling been... through, you know, you, you get a movie on Apple iTunes because I did buy it. You did buy it. Did. That is true. You did buy it. Um, and, you know, you do that scrolling thing and you, and you can see the little picture on the screen and uh, the scene like <laughs> oh 15 minutes before the one we're going to talk about where um, Shasta is naked. I watched that scene again. That is a chunk. That's a chunk of a scene right there. You did. <laughs> oh God. All right. Oh, you all really. You, mm, okay. I'm just like the last episode. I'm going to start getting angry. I'm going to start getting angry. Um, <laughs> so that I'm a true Paul's drag race. Have you watched since March? I will be honest. Not a lot. Not a it's lot. the best show on TV. I, 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 I did um, the, the Brett Michaels dating show from a few years back. Um, sort of, Brett's, was it Brett Michaels' Rock of Love? Is it Rock yeah, yeah, Rock of Love. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, you know that first season. Um, you know, I knew he wasn't going to. The girl he picked, I knew they weren't going to. They weren't meant to last. They, just, yeah, they, they were it, too it, different. It, they were too different. She was. She was it, too, yeah. She was just not enough of a party gal. Like she couldn't keep up. I don't think. And you, just and you more were, of an amorpho kind of like a. Uh, she was just. She's you know she's too hip, too cool. I just think she's too cool I for gotcha. Brett. Anyway. I, you know, now you're making me mad if you're comparing Rock of Love to RuPaul's Drag Race. <laughs> wow, this is the most not inherent vice episode of Increment Vice ever. Uh, so, well, cool. all right, we're, we are going to go back. We're going back. We're talking about inherent vice, damn it. So, one of the things that you did talk about when you were here last was Doc, and you were talking about him vis a vis relationship to all of PTA's movies, which you were just like, eh, I just can't really get my hands around them. There's just there's nothing there for me. And you specifically said the same thing about Doc, where you said, uh, you know, what he, who he is and what he's after. I don't know. If you, tell, if you tell me, you know, you're like, if you tell me that he's this, or if you tell me he's that, I'll say, yeah, probably. You're right. Sure. But I, I, I just don't see him. And it's interesting to me saying that. Um, I thought way, uh, you know, way back then, some 30-something episodes ago, because Jordan, while you have not been on the show, I've been going on a journey with this film. Mm a deeply personal journey. I would think so. And, uh, you know, I thought way back then, those 30-something episodes ago, that I'd kind of drawn a bead on Doc. I, I'd see, he's a lovelorn dude, unable to let go of a past in the form of, uh, of the past in the form of his ex. Uh, but over the last several episodes, um, talking to guests, uh, I've begun to see not so much like a different man, maybe, but a much more complex man. And, in that it used to feel like Doc was kind of like this comic outlier in PTA's gallery of, of tortured protagonists. Uh, mm -hmm. But the more time has gone on, the more to me he's become such a, I don't want to say typical as in cliche, but 
typical as in very much of a piece with what has come before him in PTA's films. Uh, a typical PTA protagonist in that he is wrestling with some really, really dark and heavy shit. His, his journey through the movie now seems so much less a journey through the past, which is what it was for me when, when we last spoke about this movie, uh, and more him coming face to face with a shocking, for him, uh, conservatism in terms of what he wants from women. It's, 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 it's actually helpful that you watched the sex scene that you did because I, <laughs> Jordan, give me a big thumbs up. Uh, because I think that that scene specifically is about Shasta confronting him with his maybe more regressive attitudes about who he views her to be or should be for him mm-hmm. versus who she really is and what she really wants. Uh, and I think also he's gone on this journey and discovered, as I've said a lot in the last few episodes, uh, his complicity, his fucking complicity in that he let the Koi Harlingen, that's, that's Owen Wilson if we're losing track of names, uh, he, the, he let the Koi Harlingen case draw on by following instead his ex, a woman who very much did not want to be saved, but he felt he had to rescue. And he used to work with Adrian Prussia as a skip, as a skip tracer. His antipathy towards Bigfoot as a joke has kept him from digging into the death of his partner. And, uh, you know, all those zigzag lines lead to this central shatter point of the golden thing. They all, all these things happened on Doc's watch. He was even, again, I've also pointed this out and I'm sure it's going to shock you that I'm repeating myself about anything. Because when, when have I ever done that? Uh, it's even mentioned in the film that Doc's first case was funded by Crocker Fenway, the big bad that's at the very end of the film that is as close as we get to a face for the Golden Fang. Uh, that was his first client. The Golden Fang was essentially his first client that funded everything that's come after. Uh, and it wasn't until watching the film again last week in prep for the episode with our mutual pal, Sean Cosby, that I realized that a lot of this film is just about that. It's about complicity and it's about, I think it's become more and more about a moral reckoning with yourself and what you've let yourself become involved in to the point that this scene almost becomes biblical. The the scene coming up that we're going to talk about because it's almost like this karmic crucible for doc. He has to pay for something. Mm -hmm. All of that is you used to say in that last episode you said i don't really have my hands around doc now do you have a better grip around doc or have i said all of that for you just to go yeah that makes sense (laughs) i don't think i want to say that makes sense so much as i want to say that like i and i might have said this last time too i'm totally willing to cop to the fact that i might just be stupid I, I really, I Jordan, think Jordan, this sometimes. is your shit. This is your stuff, man. This is, <laughs> this is, this is, it's, it's tortured masculinity and it's race gangs and it's, it's SoCal crime. Come on. You're not going to let this, I'm not going to let you, let you get away that easy. <laughs> no. And I will say, I mean, I, I joked about stopping on the nudity, which is why I stopped. Um, I'm a human being. We're in lockup. And, but um, I, I do agree with you that it, what, what's amazing about that scene. And I'm, I know you've done a whole episode dedicated to it, but like, we can keep just, going back. We can go that, back. That, that she just shows up. That he has he has created this mythos that he is like you're saying a, a rescuer, somebody yeah. who is searching and hunting. You don't not for a person, but for this idea that he has lost. And then she just walks in the door because that's what people do. They can just yeah. walk through the door. They don't need you. They don't need you to find or seek or hunt or anything. They just 
They just walk through the, she's back. Why is she back? Because she wants to be back, not because of anything he's done. And I do think that, um, no, he's a, he's a really interesting character, particularly, you know, you watch River Phoenix and you watch him in this and, and he gets to that place in the scene that we're going to talk Phoenix. about. Did I just say, I just said River, didn't I? You did, because his birthday wow. was recently. Man, that's fucked up. Um, <laughs> you don't really get them confused that much anymore. Thank you. <laughs> um, Joaquin Phoenix, yes. Um, and his ability to, to get, without like what I would call a lot of histronics, uh, histrionics, he, he's able to get to that place of, of like the true, like what violence is actually like, which is not cool and clean and neat, um, but it's just like this messy physicality that he also does in... Um, you know, a lot more and, and you were never really here. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, it, so everything you're saying completely uh, gels with that. And, uh, and it really is, it's, it's uh, a scene with, as, as we'll get to it, as it's very, very little information. Um, and for an action scene, not a tremendous amount of what you would call actual action um, in a way that I, I find very pleasing. I, uh, I, I like violence more than I like action as a storytelling tool because action is, is like the fake prolongment of violence. Do you know what I mean? I know, no, I know. I, I get exactly what you mean. And I think that what's also interesting about, the, the, you say that, and yet it is almost a revolutionary action scene in terms of what has come before it in yes. the film. It is so not, it, it just as much as the sex scene, I think, is was rather jarring for a lot of people the first time you watch it because it is so harrowing. I mean, it's there is there is it can be arousing, there can be sexual tension in that scene, but it is also deeply disturbing. And the level of emo emotional turmoil that's going on beneath the surface is just it's 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 almost hard to watch because of how how uncomfortable it is and how tonally against the grain it is. That is such. There were, there were critiques when the film came out that say the sex scene was something out of a different film. I, I disagree. I think it is actually just the subtext finally kind of rearing itself up and saying hi. But I, I also think that this scene ha is of a piece with that because it is it does feel like all of a sudden we've fallen into Arthur Penn's night moves mm -hmm. or uh, uh, Ashby's uh, Eight Million Ways to Die, which also features a climax in a very grubby, in a very grubby warehouse in, uh, in uh, California. And there's just, there's something about how galvanizing that is and how all of a sudden this just becomes, just like the sex scene, this becomes very real for the first mm -hmm. time in the movie. The, you know, the, the rest of the movie, it's, 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 it's funny and it's sad and it's sweet, but it's almost kind of consequence free. Yeah. And the, the, one of the things I keep pointing out in the film is how much, as much as he's a goofball, uh, how much of an audience surrogate Doc is in that anything he's confused about, we're confused about. Anything he doesn't know, we, do, we don't know. Anything that's obfuscated to him because he's high is obfuscated to us. And I think it's very interesting that really the only two times there are genuine consequences for Doc, those are the two times the movie becomes genuinely disturbing to us as a viewer. Mm -hmm. like, like for the first time, there are real consequences to all this goofy sad boy staring at your shoes missing your ex and, and i don't know there's something very real about that and as much as people find some some people i think find these these sequences totally jarring i think that they connect and i think that they are actually kind of perfect and necessary for this movie to have any kind of weight 
I think no, that that that's true. And I, you know, also the the complaint that some a movie changes tones is a often it's a juvenile an complaint. complaint. Yeah, um, and it's odd that like when you see it in Parasite, you know, where uh, you have the distance of it's a Korean film, it's very easy for critics to to applaud those wild shifts in tone. Um, but there's something about when you when an American film does it that is, suddenly it's a problem because we're so conditioned by Hollywood to expect a film to be what it appears to be on the surface and to not vary from that. Um, you know, it also, it makes me think about, um, you know, the sixties and this time period, it's always been this time period that had this candy coated shell that there was always so much real violence right underneath the surface. Yeah. Um, have you ever read um, Joan Didion's The White Album? Oh yeah. Um, you know, she talks about it in that, like she talks about like, they didn't know what was going to happen, but they like, like when the Manson murders happened, she was like, Oh, here it is. It was that feel. Yeah. There's a great line. And I, I'm going to, I'm not going to get it a thousand percent. Right. Even though I should, because it's such an immoral line, but she's, she's like, you know, she was talking about how she remembers um, the, the, the dread and the horror and the pain of it. But she also says something to the effect of, I also remember that no one was surprised. Yes. Um, I'm looking cause I weirdly have, I have it written down somewhere in my laptop, but uh, well, I will just, say that she says, she says this great line, which is not exactly the same thing, but she says uh, right before the Manson murders, I recall a time when the dogs barked every night and the moon was always full. Yeah. Pretty great line right there. That's a great one. Oh, she's John Didion. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> good line, John. Uh, good line. But yeah, I, I, I yeah, and, and in last week's episode with Sean, we, we both, we did kind of link the Shasta and Doc love scene to this entire beat of the film in that this is, that Doc is a character who is fucked up. And it's only now that I think, it's only now in this portion of the film we realize how badly he is fucked up. Mm-hmm. And just like it was only in that scene, that we go, oh, well, maybe maybe doc's not the good guy here and not that he's a he's a bad guy but that there is it, it, it was only once we got to that sex scene the first time i watched the film i was like oh so doc's not just like the lovelorn dude that should get the girl back you know that there's clearly been some poor decision making on his part in terms of who this woman is and who he wants her to be and this inability to see that Maybe she wanted to go do these things, all the horrible things, or that to him are horrible that she says that uh, Mickey did with her or put her through. She also makes it clear she did, did all of this of her own volition. And I feel, again, I feel like there is some kind of tethered from that to this sequence where it's a man reckoning with the mistakes that he's done in his past, which I think is actually quite appropriate in that what is Inherent Vice, the book, but written by a guy in 2009 angry and looking back at his movement the mm-hmm. movement that defined that period of his life and how badly they failed at it and how yeah. badly they were paying attention to all the wrong things so that each each new harrowing moment rfk mlk jfk all all of these things like seemed that seemed shocks shocked at the time and or like the, the manson murders looking back on it going, yeah, we shouldn't have been surprised at all. Like it was always there. It was always going to be there. The fault lines were always running to that. And we didn't, 
we didn't see it because we were chasing the wrong dreams or we were focusing on the wrong things. The way Doc has spent this entire film looking for a girl who did not want to be found in the opening scene when he says, how do I find you? She says, you don't. Yeah. And literally she lays it out at the beginning of the movie. I just need you to check on this guy. I think they're going to put him in a booby hatch and steal his money. How do you find me? You don't. You don't. Leave me out. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's wild the way that we just kind of accept the structure of movies that when he goes chasing after her the rest of the movie, we just kind of go, yeah, that's what the mystery is. We're, we're Shasta. And right. it's not. And, and I think it's, again, I'm rambling, but that's what he discovers again in this sequence is how badly he's done. At how, bad, uh, how badly he has been detecting this mystery because there really was not a mystery. It was right in front of him if he would have been willing to look. And it's only now that he's looking and now he has to pay some sort of karmic price for it. And that comes in the form of the Dean of Mean, Keith Jardine. I love saying that. I do too. And, and we've gone, this conversation has gone so far afield that I almost forgot that we're here to celebrate uh, the Dean of Mean, Keith Jardine. Um, I, I will say I, I did do a, a little uh, research prepping for today and the UFC has gotten really good about scrubbing old fights off of YouTube. Um, um, that used to be really easy because I really wanted to rewatch his uh, fight with Chuck Liddell, um, which is such a, a great, um, you know, you know the, the concept of kayfabe and uh, that pro wrestling is, is fake and has a storyline mm-hmm. that, that is expressed as kayfabe. Um, and, and what's great about real sports is they try and, and do a kayfabe storyline. In this case, it was supposed to be the comeback of Chuck Liddell, who was the biggest star in the sport at the time. And so they just you know what, let's just throw Keith Jardine at him and let, let, uh, let him just beat the hell out of Keith and he'll have his big triumphant comeback and then we got ourselves our star back, um, which if you had control of the storyline like they do in pro wrestling, that's exactly what would have happened and Chuck Liddell would have won. And instead, not only did Keith Jardine beat him, I know we just talk, discussed this a little bit last time, but not only did Keith Jardine beat him, but he beat him in the most annoying, slow unexciting way possible which is he just kicked him in the shin a bunch over and over and over over and over again and you know uh i what i learned today researching uh and doing a little digging on on keith jardine is uh that nowadays he's not remembered for that what he's remembered for now is how badly he got knocked out three or four times near the end of his career um, I, I remember watching it live when it happened, when Houston Alexander knocked him out and I rewatched, I found a clip of that today. And I'll tell you this, boy, they stopped fights sooner now in the UFC than they did <laughs> 10 years ago. I just, it's horrifying to watch now. Cause you're just watching, you know, CTE happen in real time. So uh, Keith, the Dean, I mean, Keith Jardine's ability to deliver lines in a PT Anderson film should be applauded because Houston Alexander knocked, you can almost see a chunky ear come out as or a chunk of brain come out of his ear at one point. Yeah, <laughs> you can. And I'm only laughing because I, I always applaud your commitment to the name and that you will not say his name without prefacing it with the Dean of Mean. Well, That's I mean, you know, if, look, if, if somehow that rhymed, so it made sense to call me the Dean of Mean, I would damn well sure make sure you said it every time. It was a pretty good, <laughs> pretty good name. Also, if that was my nickname, you would do it because you would be scared of me. Because you'd be mean. Because I'd be the, not just mean. You'd be the dean of me. The yes. dean of me. The dean of me. Um, I, I apologize. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good nickname. <laughs> On that note, let's, yeah. let's, let's, let's watch our dean of mean do his Indeed. thing and come to his, uh, his ignoble end. 
we're we're gonna watch him lose a fight we're gonna watch him lose one more fight and we'll come back we'll chat about it this is his legacy Special treat for you today, doper. Just got in a shipment of pure number four. Ain't a white guy's finger laid on it. Between the golden triangle and your own throbbing vein. Just let me step out, Aaron. I'll go get you some. I think that one thing Inherent Vice has uh, that even surprised me as, as if we've gone deeper is how much shit is going on beneath the surface. Like a lot of that stuff I was talking about, like the weird stuff about like machismo and masculinity mm-hmm. and uh, Doc's treatment of his girl like that stuff like I've seen this movie a billion times I only started seeing it like towards the end of the show I'm like oh wow he's just kind of a dick boyfriend isn't he <laughs> um, and the way that that kind of parallels our relationships with the past in general and the way that very much I think parallels Pinchon's like boomer relationship to the past uh, and the romanticization that's, that's not the right way to say that word but um, romanticizing the past as this thing that needs to be saved and preserved and loved Mm -hmm. and then when you actually sit back and you look at the the past that he is talking about saving it's like it's 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 a nightmare it's a a fucking nightmare uh you know the 60s are fucking terrifying like there's like i would i i feel like we're living through our own kind of version of it. i wouldn't want to live through the fucking 60s yeah the music is great but you know what i can pull that up on spotify right now uh i don't know i, I actually i do know i would i would be scared shitless my hair would go white if i was living in the 60s i would I mean, not want to be alive then 
I don't know if you saw this, LA Times today has a, I think it was today, it's something this week, they published a giant article about the death of Ruben Salazar, the, uh, the journalist who was killed during the Chicano riots in like the early 70s. Um, it's really, uh, Hunter S. Thompson wrote a great article about I mean, I Ruben know who Salazar. he is, I, I, yeah, I yeah. didn't see the article. Um, but uh, it just, I didn't read the whole thing yet, but it's just like, you read it and you go, oh yeah, they were like, and I know they're killing people now, but like, boy, they were killing people. Um, like, uh, I haven't seen a, a straight up assassination of, uh, like, a of a rioter yet the way that like, you know, they murdered Fred Hampton or something like that. Mm -hmm. It was real. Like, we don't talk anymore about all the bombings. You know, that's a big difference between now the protests now and the protests then is like the weathermen, they were setting off bombs all the fucking time. It was just crazy. And I think that that actually kind of ties and maybe we're just doing, we're still doing an episode right now. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I, I feel like that kind of ties, that ties right back to what you said about what Didion wrote. When you look at her words, which were written at the time, they make that time seem like such a fucking nightmare. Oh, yeah. And so not something to be fought for and preserved. And it's fascinating that as, as early as 1969, 1970, you have someone writing those words. You have someone saying, I know that, I, I also remember we, we, we were not surprised by this. And that, and yet, and yet, some thirty years on, we still have some of our best writers, best living American authors, still wrestling with that concept. And I don't think that Pinchon is looking back uh, with uh, with rose with rose hued glasses at the time. I think the whole point of this book is him looking back, going, "Fuck, we messed up. We yeah. really, we blew it. Like total uh, Captain America from Easy Rider, staring at the fire, going, "Man, we blew it.'" But it is, it is so fascinating to me how uh, film and book both kind of marry that idea to the idea of heartbreak mm -hmm. for anything and that inability to let go. There's, there's a line earlier in this movie. There's a, there's a line earlier in the film, and it's in the book as well, where when Doc is stopping by Hope Harlingen's place and she's saying, I think my husband is still alive. And, and he and the sort of liege the narrator kicks in saying, you know, Doc had come to know all sorts of people who were like this, who just couldn't acknowledge that people who had died had actually died, even if it was someone like a classmate. They just couldn't. They couldn't let. They couldn't have that finality. They couldn't just let go. There had to be a reason. There had to be, well, no, there's this, there's that, and of course, in the book, it's actually true. Owen Wilson's character is alive, but for the most part there's this, this inability to let go of our pasts. And I, I think that that is so rich. I don't know. I think there's a thematic richness here. I, I, that, uh, I think there's some, some deep waters to swim in here. And I, I, I think there's something to that. And it, um, it's, it's funny that we're having this conversation today when I saw, and, and because you're not on Twitter, you missed it. About 10, 12 days running. Yeah. yeah you're 10, 12 days clean. There's a guy who's getting goofed on on Twitter right now uh, because he became the guy for today. You know, or you're not, yeah, supposed, yeah, to be, you're not supposed to be the guy, yeah. the main character of Twitter. And he, if, if even just for an hour or two this morning, became the main character of Twitter in that there's someone who made a fan edit of Twin Peaks season three in which he cut out all of the new characters that, quote, have nothing to do with anything. Mm -hmm. he took out all of the music and put in the soundtrack from the first two seasons 
he recolor timed it so everything has that kind of brownish gold hue of uh the original two seasons and doesn't look shot uh digitally the way the way lynch did mm-hmm. um a lot of the dougie stuff is cut and a lot of the musical uh performances at the roadhouse are cut and uh even there's there's no there's no green glove battle with 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 bob every uh everything is all anything like that has been taken out and his argument and it's called it's it's called twin peaks nostalgia cut and what I think is so interesting about that is I am of the opinion that Twin Peaks season three is something that David Lynch spent years of his life crafting an 18 hour parable about the dangers of hanging on to the past and being unwilling to let go of the past, going so far as to sacrifice his most noble creation, Dale Cooper. To teach us a le- to, to, as an example, showing mm-hmm. the, uh, Cooper as someone unable to let go of something in the past that that irk that still bothers him, that still that still eats away at him, unable to let that go, and literally doomed to rip up time and space for eternity because he couldn't just accept things as they are. And so it's ironic to me that someone literally has to tear up season three of Twin Peaks because it's not like the way it used to be. And to me, that is so much, and it's a weird, this is the most roundabout episode of this show, but to me, that is what Inherent Vice is about, and that's what Doc is going through right here and now, Mm -hmm. is this is, he is having to pay a price because he could not let go and just be present and be at peace with the past and accept the past as the past. He had to keep looking back, and now he's getting the shit kicked out of him. Fair, fair enough. I, I just to, because I I am not on Twitter and. Oh my God! I, are you tempted to look at this cut? Is that what you're? No, no. Say? I, well, I'm not tempted to look at it, but you know what? Who cares? Good for him. I'll I know I shouldn't care, but it fucking bothers me, Jordan. It bothers. Here's the me. thing. Here's the thing. I know I, I know say. I shouldn't be bothered because Twin Peaks season three still exists. I can watch it anytime I want. I have the Blu-ray box set. I own it. It's fantastic. It's beautiful. It just and I know I shouldn't care that someone dumb on the internet does something dumb on the internet. But someone but. did something dumb on the internet and it bothers me because it so misses the point of the thing that every action this person has taken totally spits in the face of the, of the, of the reason that this thing exists to begin with. There was this uh, piece of graffiti during the, you know, the, the May riots in Paris in 1968. Uh, I don't speak French, so I can't say it in French, but it's one of my, my favorite uh, quotes, which is, uh, there's a sleeping cop inside all of us who must be killed. Um, and it's really one of the things in my life I spent a lot of time thinking about. And the thing about Twitter, and I, as someone who's been on Twitter for over a decade, it, it finds that cop in your heart and it puts jackboots on them. And it'll be, today it'll be somebody put ketchup on a hot dog. Tomorrow it'll be some guy did a fan edit of, of Twin Peaks. Um, you know what I mean? Like Ketchup just, on a hot dog is disgusting. Who the fuck, you know, pineapple on pizza. I don't care. Like that bothers me too. I know. I know I'm I'm being a cop. I know. know. (laughs) I'm just saying no, but it's one thing to like go, oh, it's not for me. You know, I used to be somebody who would like if I if one of my friends would order a well done steak at a restaurant, I'd go, like, you know that they just give you the worst cuts of beef. That's just the worst thing you can do. I'm just working (laughs) on uh on eliminating that for myself. And uh and I'm not saying that it's like it's not like a moral stance. I'm not saying like it's a moral stance. 
it's literally making it easier for me to write again. Um, I think that the, the cop that Twitter inflates in your head, first it gets mad at the guy putting hot dog ketchup, then it gets mad at the Twin Peaks guy, and then it gets mad at you for wanting to write about white power people <laughs> or, you know what I mean? Like, I just, I think having the negative voices, God, we are really, are we recording a podcast or not? I, you know, I, I should probably have mentioned, hey gang, we are going to talk about the scene, but uh, Jordan and I kind of got on a tangent. And again, hey, listen, what a great host I am bringing it back to Inherent Vice. Here I am, like a character out of Inherent Vice, not able to let go of what Twin Peaks season three means to me mm. and how I define it for myself, that I am angry and trying to stop someone from defining it as something else for them. And what do I have to lose? Well, what, what hurts me? What, what, what do I lose? Because some goof decided to waste his time uh, pissing all over a work of art because he prefers he, he, he prefers his hot dogs with ketchup, even though he, everyone knows it should be French's yellow mustard that you put on a hot dog. Yeah, pork and los dos, you know. <laughs> but so, 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 yes, we, hey, everyone, we, we are going to talk about inherent vice, I promise. Uh, we, we, we've peppered it in here and there. Uh, but there's just that idea, that, that idea of just being unable to let go of the past and how that can poison you is something that's very much been on my mind of late, especially because look where we are in the world uh, and look what's going on in the world. And I don't know, I mean, I, don't you spend all of your time thinking about, like uh, this entire conversation that we've had, I've been thinking about the first time you were on the show and we were standing in a room together in a recording studio and there were people there mm-hmm. and going to see movies after that and being able to interact and it just, there's something about to go back to that initial question that you asked when we were supposed to be watching the scene is, you know, do, do I think that this lends itself uh, is it better or worse to kind of long form conversation? And I actually think that there is so much in this film that lends itself to just eternal ongoing conversation because it is about that one thing that, mm-hmm. you know, not all of us have an opportunity to meet our Macaulay. And not all of us have that ability to have the heightened experience of our lives the way uh, uh, Pacino and De Niro do at the end of Heat, where they're finally able to meet their other, their capital O other, which kind of Doc does in the scene after this, when he sees who's kind of set him up to, to kill Adrian Prussia. See what I did there, everybody? I made it about a hair and vice for two seconds. Uh, mm. But not everybody has that apex predator moment. Not everyone has that moment of heightened revelation in their lives. But I think that the one thing that I think that this film explores that we are, we all know and we can all touch is just that, that inability to stop looking over our shoulder and going, man, if it had just been a little different or if it had just stayed that way, not even if it had been different, if it had just fucking stayed that way, everything would be okay. I wouldn't be handcuffed to a pipe in a building in downtown LA with the Dean of Mean, Keith Jardine, threatening to stab me in the neck with uncut number four, China mm-hmm. White, uh, to, to, to OD my ass because I, I, I couldn't stop. I couldn't stop digging around. I couldn't. And I, I, I think that there is, that is the most human impulse is to just look back over your shoulder and wish it had been, it, things were still in place. And so that is why, that is my very long-winded answer to your question, which is why I think that there's a lot 
there's always going to be something to talk about with this movie. And I think the older that people get, the older that I get, the older that anyone gets that watches this film and gives it the time, the more they're going to see in it too. And I certainly know that going through 2020 has made me see a very different movie than the film that you and I spoke about last November. Like this movie is such a different film now because what, what are, what are all of us doing right now except looking back? Like, I don't even feel like we're looking forward to the future anymore because we don't know when the future is going to happen anymore. We don't know when real life, whatever that is, is going to happen again. So now mm-hmm. we're just all looking at the before time. We even have that word for it now. Everyone calls it that, the before time. <laughs> yeah. And we're looking at it going, man, that was, we didn't know, did we? We just didn't, we didn't know how good it was. No. And that's what Inherent Vice is to me. It's to the point of toxicity, how, how it can curdle us, how it can twist us that that look back how it can make us do some fool shit like thinking that we can re-edit an 18-hour david lynch series or go after an ex who wants nothing to do with us Mm -hmm. and rescue her from herself and her choices uh, uh her choices in men who aren't us or uh you know the way bigfoot can't let go of uh, his partner's death and has to set someone up to, to kill everybody because he can't do it. I don't know. There's something about that. The, the irretrievability of the past and yet the, our inability to keep trying. And that to me is what the book is to me, what the movie is. And yeah, I could talk about that forever. Uh, I think especially the older I get, uh, I could, I could talk as I'm doing right now. I could just keep going on and on and on as you sit there in abject horror staring at me across the digital screen. <laughs> uh, you know what? I think I'll accept your answer. Thank uh, you. Thank you. To, to my, to my questions. Can I go on, can I go on oxygen for a second after that? Yeah. 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 You, you vamp for me. Oh, well, well, health. we could watch the clip. Oh, hell we've seen it. We've seen the movie. We're going to, we're going to, the clip's already been edited in through, through the magic, through the magic of this business of show that we are both in mm-hmm. by this point in the conversation, the scene's already played Jordan. The scene's oh, wow. Already played. So Nifty. they've already heard it. They've already heard it. Those people out there at home, at home, the home viewers. So we're already past. So we got to talk about the scene now because it's already played. Uh, you know, you, you, that, that fella, uh, PT Anderson, a uh, pretty good filmmaker, right? Pretty good. Um, <laughs> Knows what he's doing. He knows. He's he's never going to come on the show now. You talk about him like that. Oh man, I'm sorry to ruin that for you. Um, No, he's (laughs) he's 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 a good he's a good filmmaker. And and let me tell you the difference between a good filmmaker and and like a bad one uh, is a a bad director has heard about the concept of interior framing of a shot, in which uh, for those of you not for you Travis but for the listener at home. is when somebody inside a shot, you know, the, the shot is a frame in itself, but inside that frame, there's another frame that the, the character is trapped within like a doorway or a window. That's interior framing. A, a, uh, a bad director has heard that phrase, thinks it's nifty, and will just shoot a shot. We're going to shoot through the window. That's interior framing. That's good filmmaking and have no thought as to why you're doing it. Yeah. A good filmmaker it doesn't need to have it be mind blowing. It's not revolutionary. Our character is trapped. Would you not say at this point in this scene <laughs> that Doc is trapped? He is handcuffed. The dean of mean Keith Jardine has gone to fetch the heroin that will kill him, and he's got to escape. And he just does the most simple thing, which is so effective, which is he shoots the scene through a window, so that you can see that Doc is trapped. That's just good filmmaking. Indeed, I would, I, would agree. I would concur that that is an astute observation on your part. It is a scene shot through a window. It is. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it actually means something when he does. You know what I mean? And it's, yeah, again, no. 
it's just that's that's just basic film grammar in a way that I, I'm just grousing about modern TV directors. Who, <laughs> who no, I actually that to... I actually find something quite horrifying about it, and I think it actually adds to the horror of the scene. Is um, I have this weird, it's, it's not even a theory, and it's going to sound so stupid out loud. It's just something that I know feels right to me. Um, long distance shots, kind of mid level shots. There's something mm-hmm. to when you see something violent i've i've never found close-ups in in violent sequences to be particularly affecting or disturbing at all it feels very false the more removed i am from an act of violence and like removed literally by distance the more real it feels and the more kind of it's not as bombastic it's not as big it's not as cinematic it's it's what violence is which is kind of ugly and quick yeah. And there's a wet thud and it's over. And I always think about the scene in, at the end of the Terminator where Schwarzenegger is taking the guy out of the semi and just stomping him to death. And you just see a very long distance shot of that as Sarah Connor is like hiding under a truck. Yeah. And there's there's nothing, there, there's some sort of strange nightmare logic to that. Just seeing something that cleanly, that far away and knowing that we're eventually going to get closer and closer to it. And I, the the rare violence in this film that's not for pure comedy. I mean, we've seen Doc get clocked on the back of the head with a baseball bat from Adrian earlier in this movie and does this cute little rabbit punch and falls down. That's funny. But uh, there is something, again, if we, I, I feel that there is something so consequential about this scene. There's, there's genuine weight as Doc is paying some sort of karmic debt for simply not paying attention. And I, I do think that this is a film, at least, in which karma exists in this universe. Uh, in the universe of this film, there's something about shooting it not in the room. And it might've been something as simple as the room is really small. Mm-hmm. And PTA was like, yeah, there's no way to get a camera in there and get, you know, you, there's just no way to do it. And I was like, Hey, there's a window. Maybe mm-hmm. you just put the camera outside the window. Uh, it's probably something like that. But to me, shooting through that window with the, the noise kind of muffled and there, there's something so grubby and mm-hmm. sad and real world about that. We are yanked out of the hazy, lazy 35 millimeter fuzz of this movie. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, this is real. This is a skinhead with gold teeth and a swastika on his face who is going to inject our hero with heroin and and just OD him. And he's just going to be a body in a dumpster somewhere. And seeing that through that window, seeing it through that remove, there is something so much more harrowing and real about that. And that's, that's the tone to me of this entire film is, or this entire sequence in the film, what a different film Inherent Vice abruptly becomes here. We, our hero is tied to a pipe or handcuffed to a pipe about to be murdered uh, with a hotshot overdose of China White. And our hero's only way out is to beat this guy half to death with a toilet tank lid. Yeah. And then use the syringe for him and then just fire wildly in a staircase hoping to hit the other guy. Uh, like I said, this is, this is like weird Eve sub night moves territory or I don't I, I don't know if you've seen it uh our friend Jed Ayers would be mad at you if you hadn't uh, eight million ways to die territory where it's just it's grubby and it's ugly and it's not cool and it's not fun it's very sweaty and life or death and not cinematic at all and that's what makes it so weirdly special I I haven't actually seen it Jed can be mad at me I give him permission to be mad at me anytime he needs to be eight million ways to die right um Sorry, I just had to write that down because... Everybody should be writing that down. Hal Ashby's final film, uh, well, really put together film, 8 Million Ways to Die. It's not good, 
It's not good, but Fair it's enough. a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. Good movies are overrated. Um, but you know how I feel about this. Uh, we've talked about this before. The, the, the concept of, of uh, violence just being so superior to action um, to, to, to evoke emotion, I think, is, is the main thing. And, and you're right. This is an extremely effective uh, scene for that. There's a, a couple of things that you've seen in other films, other, other, other you know, the, the hot shot. I mean, uh, anybody who watched season one of Hightown on Stars would know that I myself have trucked in the, in the hot shot. Uh, as a storytelling device. Um, the toilet lid as a bludgeon is such a good, right. nasty move. I, you see it in True Romance. Um, Patricia not Arquette. Not in the book either. It's just, um, it's, it's just for the film. Just for the film. It's so good. It, it always works. It's one of those things that, um, because it's such a, it's just there in your house right now. Your, yeah. your toilet has a lid on it and were you to pick it up, you could fucking kill somebody with it. Um, and uh, it's, it's a, such a fascinating, weird, improvised weapon um, that nobody would ever choose. It's not like uh, I'm going into the death ring and as my weapon of choice, here's my porcelain toilet lid. Um, but it's such a mean... It is handy. It is handy. You know, even like, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but uh, he, uh, the Dean of Mean Keith Jardine gives him a little kiss on the cheek. Well, no, that's, some, that's something else. That's something else that I wanted to talk about, actually. Okay. So. So I'm, I thank you for bringing that up. You're welcome. Uh, <laughs> so again, again, last week, our buddy, Sean Cosby, he was aboard the SS Increment Vice. And he mentioned that moment that Puck puts his mouth to Doc's neck mm-hmm. and gives what is, looks like essentially like a little smooch. Mm-hmm. Uh, a little smooch. That's a good way of putting it. But he saw it as if this is a promise of sexual assault to come. And, uh, and indeed in the book, Puck has lived in prison for many, many years and is made clear is no stranger to taking other men by force. Mm-hmm. I, I actually, until he had mentioned that I never made that connection to Puck's characterization in the book. I thought it was because uh, he, I thought he was actually biting into Doc's neck. Uh, the way, if you recall, the first time you watched this film many months ago, um, mm-hmm. Martin Short's character, Dr. Rudy Blacknoid, DDS, uh, is found dead with a broken neck in, on a trampoline. And it's noted that he has um, two bites in his neck, uh, about the size of a mid-sized wild animal. Uh, and that Doc suspects if the lab were to take samples, they would find gold alloy in mm. there. Because... And when, when Bigfoot says why, he's like, because this is the gold fucking fang. Um, so it just makes sense. And so I thought it was as if this weird uh, bit of mark territory marking, like he's, he's biting into, uh, into Doc's neck, leaving fang marks of some sort. But you, you took it as a smooch. Well, I did. Um, but I, I, here's what I say. I, I think, again, both things can be true. Like, sure. Um, you know, there's a, you know, the, the, it definitely whether or not he's going to actually rape him later, which is not the reading I would have for it. It is, it is a means of like aggressive sexual ownership as violence. Hmm. Um, and it's, but what I like about it is it's not some like long drawn out, like, Ooh, I'm going to get you in the showers kind <laughs> of like cliche. It's very matter of fact and just like, just real quick little 
like smooch on the neck. Um, it ha- it does it it must be there for a reason because it actually gets a significant amount of like cinematic real estate. Like it takes time. Like it's a beat that we we PTA pauses for. Sure, but what I'm saying is like again, like he could have this kind of like sexual violence to his or, or you know to to his to his violence. I guess you would say he doesn't bite Doc on the neck. Right, Doc isn't bleeding. You know, you're right. I don't I don't, I don't notice any blood. Uh, or at least there's no there's no insert uh, indicating there's actually been a bite of any sort. But you know, I mean, you know, maybe um, he's just kissing the spot where he's going to put the hot shot, right? Or he's just given. I to me, it's it's very much a, just a, I'm kissing you to show you that to own you to own you. Um, yeah. I was going to quote Mike Tyson, but I think I'll pull up. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we, we don't need to. We're so close uh, to being canceled this episode. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Let's let's pull up. Um, but yeah, it's a, uh, it's a really, I mean, it's just an intimate thing of like, oh wow, I yeah, I'm just gonna slap you around, give you a quick kiss on the neck, or bite, or suck, or whatever, um, and then I'm gonna go uh, get the shot um, straight from the golden triangle. Straight from um, the gold, right to your throbbing vein. Yeah, it's a great line, um, which he delivers really well. Like, were you not a little surprised at? the Dean of Mean Keith Jardine's performance, especially in this sequence, the, the, I think that an inexperienced actor, which no offense, that's he, he was not a born and a, oh, a trained actor. He's an athlete. Uh, the casual malevolence of it. I think that there is, there would have been an instinct in most non-actors to be really heavy, to come on yeah. really thick with it. Cocked eyebrow, really leering, stroking the beard. And what's kind of amazing about his performance is he's kind of tickled by it. Like yeah. he's, he's almost, he's a, just like he is in the scene with uh, the necktie that Shasta's painted naked on that he's wearing around his neck like a trophy and just rolling it under his chin and letting it go, rolling it under his chin. He's like a cat playing with a mouse that's already caught. And so he's having fun. He's like, the way he kind of knowingly smiles at Doc, he, like, like, I know you're going to die. You know you're going to die. So why not? Let's just have some fun here. I mean, I will say that, A, you know, again, you watch, like, the Dean I mean, Keith Jardine's fights. He does carry that kind of joie de vivre and violence in him <laughs> naturally. Yeah. I mean, again, I, I wasn't able to find it today, but I, I remember the fight really well. There is a smile on his face while he is uh, taking uh, Chuck Liddell apart. And Chuck Liddell, by the way, is, is hitting him, too. It's not, it's not a one-sided beatdown. Um, but he had this kind of, he has this, like, kind of crazy smile. And... And this is this is not a statement of fact um, that I don't think of P.T. Anderson as one of these directors, but there are directors who have a real true gift for finding um, non-professional actors and drawing this level of uh, performance from them. And uh, you know, you think of obviously Lynch um, mm-hmm. is perfect at it. The Safdie brothers, and I know it's, and and clearly, although it's not something I associate with P.T. Anderson, it's something he's perfectly capable of doing because he does it here. He, he takes a non-professional actor and gets the exact right performance out of them. And when you can do that, it adds such a richness to your film. It, uh, you know, the thing about Keith Jardine is he's, he's a character and he's also a mug. I mean, that guy is a mug. He's got I a mean, face on him. He's got a fucking face on him with those ears and, and all that. And, you know, those guys don't become professional actors anymore. There was <laughs> a, a, a period in, in American history where they did. And they would always do, they'd play this role. They'd always play the heavy. Yeah. They were born to play the heavy. Um, and you don't, they don't make those guys anymore. Those guys would never think about moving to Hollywood now. Um, 
And so if you're going to get a guy who doesn't look like, you know, uh, an OC reject to play your muscle-bound thug, you kind of have to go and, and go get yourself the Dean Amin Keith Jardine. Um, but you're right that he delivers. It's a very good performance. Um, I mean, it's only seconds long or a, a few minutes long, but it is so effective and so startling. And he, he both exists in this movie's universe, but is something so so much darker and so much realer and so much out of like our world or so much out of so, he, he he feels like he stepped out of one of out of a book that you wrote and into mm. this story like he's that real and that lethal and that malevolent like there's no like, there's no fuck around shit with buck beaverton like he might have yeah. a goofy pinchonian name but like this is this is a scene of actual heft and actual consequence and that is what gives it so much of that heft and that consequence is his performance is the Dean of Mean, Keith Jardine's performance, where he does play it like he would play the character Keith Jardine in the ring, the way he would, yeah. and that attitude of like, you're beneath me, I am going to break you. That's a certitude at this point, like there's a certainty. So I'm going to have fun here. I'm just going to, I'm going to have fun because this isn't a challenge for me. And there's something terrifying about that. And um, I don't know how many like fist fights you've been in, but that is always the scariest attitude uh, oh, yeah. When you're going up against someone, when their attitude is that of, this is going to be fun. Like yeah. this is this is going to be like exercise, and you don't know how that's going to end because when you, that's what the moment you go, oh shit, this person's fucking crazy. Like they're crazy. <laughs> it's it's craziness. It's also it's it's a function. It's like about eighty percent of the point of fight training is to train you to get hit in the face and not freak out, not yeah. think it's the end of the world. And, and that's something that obviously is having to keep Jardine a lot. <laughs> like, um, <laughs> he wants to get hit in the face. He wants to get hit in the face. I, I, he probably regrets that now. But uh, again, but he I wants just, it. You want that it. Houston Alexander fight was not cool, man. <laughs> they should have stopped that fight <laughs> a good 30 seconds before they did. Um, and, you know, but look, there's been a lot of, I'm trying to think now, uh, like MMA fighters trying to make the transition into acting is not usually successful. But I think the ones I'm thinking of, Ronda Rousey, um, oh, the uh, Gina Carano, yeah. um, they try and put them, I think, in too big of roles. They yeah. try and make Gina Carano like the lead of a film, um, as opposed to you know this. Give him thirty seconds. Let him be exactly who he is. Let the weirdness of him come through. Don't try and make him an action star. Yeah. Um, and it works, it works perfectly. It's, it's, it's a really great performance from a non-professional actor. So. Now, when the Dean of Bean, Keith Jardine, mm -hmm. exits the scene, I did not mean for so much of that to rhyme. I did not, sure. I, I, yeah. I didn't realize what I was doing until I backed all the way into the spot. Mm -hmm. uh, there is a bit where Doc is left hanging and alone and we're, how the hell does he, how do you, how do you get out of this? Like what, you know, what movie trick is going to get him out of this? And there is a bit from Pinchon's book, which actually, again, it's another thing that kind of made me think of a Jordan book. It's, it felt like something that would come up with your character. So I'm going to read directly from this, port, this portion of the scene from the book. There is a fairly straightforward way to get out of handcuffs, which Doc had learned as soon as he began having regular run-ins with the LAPD. A metal clip snapped off of a ballpoint pen would have worked, but they'd taken his pen away when they took the Smith & Wesson. Doc always made a point, however, of carrying in different pants pockets, loose and he hoped unnoticeable, 
two or three plastic shims he'd cut long ago from an expired Bullock's charge card that Shasta had left behind. The idea was to slide the plastic strip into one cuff to disengage the locking prod and also cover the ratchet teeth so the prowl couldn't re-engage. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I, I promise I'm going somewhere with this. Okay. In the film, it's a little different. He, he pulls the, the shim of Shasta Faye Hepworth's credit card out of his shoe. But it's, it's one of the few moments we have an actual extreme close-up in this film and not a mid-shot where it's made clear that this is a Shasta Faye Hepworth credit card. Mm. Uh, now, a, a, as I've said, a constant, constant, constant growing thread in the second half of this show has been that ultimately Shasta is someone that Doc should let go of. That this past... Oh boy, look how all of our rambling digressions earlier, Jordan, are coming here to roost. Uh, That's so smart. Oh, thank you. Uh, that at some point, he needs, Doc has got to make peace with the past. He has to let Shasta Faye go. Uh, and even in her return, as we said, in that cataclysmic sex scene together, seems to be built around the idea that she is trying to foist upon him to get him to recognize, you know, let me go. And so now then, what to make of this sequence in which the only reason Doc stays alive in this film is because he was nostalgic enough and sappy enough to keep an expired Bullock's credit card that Shasta had left in his bungalow and cut it to pieces and stick it in various items of his own clothing. The only reason that he survives is because he couldn't let go of something of Shasta Faye's that she had left behind in his house. I'm sure that you've done that. We've all done that, I think, where, you know, an ex leaves something behind or we, it, it, it takes on this like talismanic power for a mm-hmm. while where we hang on to it and we, 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 we mope over it. And here, here Doc is finding his salvation in a sliver of a credit card that literally bears her name that he stuck in his, his gum sandal. I mean, if one wants to keep to your thesis, Mm-hmm. One might point out that what you don't do to a totem or uh, a talisman uh-huh. is, is destroy it. Sure. Cut it up. Wow. Look at you. Mm-hmm. Now you're the host. Yeah. <laughs> it's my podcast now. We're watching <laughs> ports. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think, right? Like, um, you're right. You're right. Here I thought I was being so fucking clever. Listen to uh, you. It's because he tore it to pieces. It's the mm-hmm. because he tore it to pieces. Yeah. Oh yeah. You should be the host because it's the guy. <laughs> or you know, maybe I could try writing. You know, <laughs> instead of doing all these goddamn podcasts, maybe you could write another book, Jordan. I'm, think? Hey, I'm trying. I'm trying. I know. I know. Uh, but that's 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 you're right. That is actually that is a very valid point. And again, I, I always point this out. Uh, there's a growing thing on this show where I've seen this movie. At this point, I have to be, I would think, I would think in like the top 10% of people who have seen this film the most, like it's got to be, right? Right? Sure. Out of the editing bay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Non-cast and crew. I've got to, I I would think. You're outside. You're you're above 10%, man. I I wanted, thank you. I was trying to be modest. I'm glad someone said it. Um, (laughs) But uh, that said, every... It's kind of amazing. You can watch a film so many times and you get a little inured to it. You, it becomes a little bit difficult to see things because you, you've stared at it for so long. It almost becomes like a piece of furniture. 
and you you miss some of the grain, the texture, and the re- the reality and the nuance to it. And every episode lately, there's been a moment where a guest will say something that I totally recontextualizes a beat for me and allows me to see it in such a different way. And it's happening right now. As again, you stare at me in abject horror as I keep going on about this movie. Is, this is uh, just my face, man. <laughs> <laughs> is that uh, you're right? It's 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 not that he held on to the Shasta face card. It's that he cut it to pieces mm-hmm. that that allows him some that allows him to escape this life trap and uh, barely make it out alive. Wow. I, I'm turning into Owen Wilson now. Wow. 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 Um, this scene and, and, and the picking of the handcuff uh, reminded me of, of a really good Russian film that came out last year called Why Don't You Die Already? Have you seen it? No, but I know the title. You've mentioned it to me. You told me. I, I, I just, uh, I won't get into it because it's a great scene and, and it's a spoiler to explain it any further than they, they, they do the classic guy has learned how to pick handcuff scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and then turn it on its head in a way that is really beautiful and it kind of explodes the, the trope in a really fun way. And it's also just a really fun pulpy movie that everyone should watch. Everyone should watch it. Add it to the list right under 8 million ways to die. Everybody. Yeah. Have you ever picked your way out of the pants of handcuffs? Um, no, man. I, no. Have you tried you know, like, I, doing the, dis- the thumb dislocating trick thing? <laughs> no. Uh, I, you know, I don't think that none of that stuff works anymore. Damn. Have you ever been in cuffs? I, have I been? Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't think we can talk about it on air, but yeah, yeah sure. I don't care. You know who who hasn't nowadays? No, um, we need we need the Jordan Easter egg. You know, we opened this episode with that's one. right. Yeah, we got to wind her down too. Like we can't just like, um, you got to be cool. Yeah, you know, uh, <laughs> you know. But today, I, I you know, I actually was was writing a scene in in one of my one of my new novels that I'm trying to finish. Uh, with a woman getting out of jail and, and, and rubbing her wrists because of the plastic ties being too tight, because that's really what they use most of the time now, are just really strong plastic ties that they just... Mm-hmm. And, I had uh, cuffs. Well, I did too, but I, I, when I got arrested, it was like, uh, God, 20 years ago now? My God. I think it was eight years for me. Um, Boy, we're having like a whole thing here. Yeah, it was. It was. It wasn't a cool story. I did not. It wasn't. I wasn't like engaged in fisticuffs, you know, fighting off the Aryan Brotherhood, <laughs> save the honor of a young woman, or anything like that. It was, it was not a cool story. Um, <laughs> fun. Oh, we have fun. We have fun talking about these white power gangs. I, I'll give you one more piece of trivia that I. Sure, that I, let's do it. Because, uh, you know, the, the heroin comes from the Golden Triangle. It does. Um, which was, in the 1960s, was the leading producer of opiates in the world. Um, it's now number two. Afghanistan's number one. Uh, it's, you know, the Golden Triangle is Thailand, Burma, or Myanmar now, and Laos. It's the, where those three places meet. And it is no longer, the, it is now the number one producer of methamphetamine in the world. Um, More than Missouri? Uh, well, the truth is, like, um, hardly any, uh, you know, the, all, those, uh, all those cooks in Missouri or in San Bernardino or whatever, um, they're producing a very small amount of the meth that's even taken in this country because uh, the, the cartels have switched over to industrial-sized labs, um, and apparently that's what they've switched over to in um, Myanmar and uh, the Golden Triangle as well. It's just these, these huge... Um, 
uh, factories that just pump the stuff out. This is a plot point in my, my new book is uh, somebody trying to build a industrial sized meth lab on this side of the border. But it really is, it's a, at this point, it's a conceit because it's just so much easier uh, to just ship it through. But what I learned today, I didn't know this until today, uh, was all that meth from Myanmar that's entering the United States is entering through Los Angeles, um, just the same way that all the heroin um, used to enter through Los Angeles from the Golden Triangle. God bless our well-guarded ports here yeah. in Lake County. And, we do, uh, we do a good job here. We do good work. <laughs> Since the other major meth pipeline, at least on this side of the world, comes through Riverside um, and comes through um, San Bernardino and from the border, uh, we are just awash in that stuff, apparently. Um, we are the, the two major pipelines for, again, this side of the country come straight through L.A. So, Well, that was an, that's an appropriately heavy kind of downer mm -hmm. way to close things out today. I mean, geez. I, I, I aim to please. <laughs> well, very in keeping with the tone of our scene today, which is about the most harrowing goddamn thing that exists in this movie, aside from that sex scene that you did take a peek at uh, before reviewing today's scene. Only human. You are only human. And, you know, we're in it's dark times. we gotta, we got to take our happiness where we can. It's dark That's times true. out there. That's uh, true. And, you know, sometimes, yeah, you got to do what you got to do. I do wish, though. I do wish. I do think. I think it's time. I think it's time you rewatch this movie from start from top to bottom, start to finish. You Fair should enough. do it. You should Fair enough. Do it for your old pal Travis. <laughs> do, it, do, it, do it for your old pal Travis. Come on, why not? Um, I have to say that I adore talking about literally almost anything with you, movie related, TV TV show related, uh, crime related, book related. Uh, same, man. This is an, this is has been an absolute blast, and. You know, I know this this episode got discursive, but it did so extraordinarily enjoyably for me. Probably just for you and me, but still. <laughs> I have no idea. Uh, somebody out there might enjoy hey, this. There's somebody out there who wants to know a little bit more about hillbilly gangs and uh, uh, the infrastructure of meth distribution in the States versus uh, the Golden Triangle. Um, there's people who want to know about how to get out of handcuffs. And, you know, and who are probably going to take deep Google dives uh, on you and your weird relationship with PTA and uh, yeah, how he's just okay. He's just okay with you. He's you know, I look, he's better. He's a good filmmaker. I'm just, uh, for me, personal enjoyment and, and quality are not two things that I think are married. Wow. Wow. I just, do you? I don't think that. I no no it is not it's like, not and i know we're it's trying not. to put the lid on the podcast no fuck it. come question. on it's it's an okay. inherent i say this every episode it's an inherent vice podcast if there's any discipline this is not a heat podcast <laughs> there's, there's no discipline here that's the whole point um no no you're 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 absolutely right there's you know i can't watch a merchant diary movie i can't do it i can't <laughs> unless unless pta is making his version of it like phantom thread which i adore uh, but um, no, I get that some of those things that just, there's a remove, there's a remove there. And it, it just, it doesn't sing your song. Although I would argue and have been trying to argue this whole episode that there's a lot more in this movie singing your song than I think you think is there. Fair enough. Wow, that uh, was just so glib and just done. Like, yeah, fair enough, sure. Yeah. <laughs> no, Why no, not, Travis? No. Maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe, sure. Wow, I feel, I feel attacked. I feel like, yeah, this has been a combative episode. I've been trying to bring that heat energy, that Macaulay, 
you know, I was trying to do that uh, that uh, uh, De Niro Pacino thing. We're across the table. We're kind of we're pushing each other. We're pushing kind of pushing each other. Each other. Yeah. Yeah. We're trying to find a truth here. I, uh, no, I and I, I think you are correct, and I think that um, I will, out of my deep respect, and I'm not being facetious here, of you and your opinions, I, I will give it another uh, try. Actually, I, I didn't, I didn't not watch it this time out of like uh, obstinance or anything. I actually just thought it would be more interesting to come in this time, just ready to talk about anything. Because you are you are like a real like podcast gunslinger at this point, <laughs> and it's like you gotta you gotta find new challenges for yourself coming into these shows where it's like, well, I can't. I'm not even gonna watch the fucking movie now, <laughs> and I'm still gonna roll it and shoot him dead eye. Like yeah, that's like you gotta. Uh, that's that's climbers who don't use ropes. Yeah, that's. <laughs> yeah. That's why, like, the next podcast you're gonna do is gonna be about the master. I don't know what that is. I don't know what that movie is. Hmm. <laughs> But I'm gonna, but you're gonna you're gonna go for 90 minutes on it. You're gonna go home. I could do it too. You could. You probably could. All right, Jordan. <laughs> Sorry, I I gotta say thank you so much for making time for this uh, during this very strange time. You were one of the very first guests on the show when this thing started ramping up, and is now as we are starting to slowly ramp down. I really wanted to have you come back on, mainly just because, like I said, it's fun to shoot the shit with you. Uh, I'm sad we didn't get more into cooking squirrels like we did last time, but that sure. episode still exists. It's out there. If someone wants it. Uh, but I do appreciate you coming again, as I said, do come on and talk about a movie that you have marginal interest in. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, find, uh, but find the things that you love in it. Find the things yeah, that were the sure. not to love, but the things that do trigger your interest points and uh, that you find fascinating about the world of crime. Come back yeah. and find those in the night. Yeah, movie. man. Look, literally, whatever movie you do next, do next time you do a movie I hate, I'll still come on. It's fun. Uh, it's fun to talk to you. And uh, congratulations, by the way, seriously, uh, on rounding the bin. These things, like that, that you and Blake do, are these are massive podcasts. It's really, it's a, it's an, it's a stamina that I applaud. And, <laughs> well, that, I mean, Blake's doing like 170 something episodes a day anymore. Sure, but yeah, we give nerd them a good name. I I think so. Yeah, why not? That's a good line, right? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Why not? Right. Why not? Why not? On that note, Jordan, thank you again for coming on. Thanks for uh, and, and hey, hey, hey! I know you're not on Twitter. I know you're not on Twitter. But tell everybody where they can find some of your stuff, where they can read your words. Uh, well, you know, uh, she rides shotgun is available at um, any fine bookseller, or at least they can order it for you. It's still in print, uh, along with my short story collection, Love and Other Wounds. Um, I wrote on this season of Hightown that's currently airing on Stars, It just finished up its uh, final episode of the season a few weeks ago. Uh, so check that out. Um, God, I really hope, you know, I have some things to announce by the next time uh, we do a podcast. I have a lot of things cooking. Uh, I am on Twitter. I'm not posting right now. I'm trying to stay sane, but it's Jordan underscore Harper at Twitter um, in case I decide to uh, come back with a vengeance and... Um, post about politics to people who like movies and post about movies to people who like politics. It's a, it's oh, a weird brand I've got working over there on Twitter. That's a good line. Um, I really, uh, I think I'm the most muted person on Twitter. I, uh, <laughs> I, because I feel like I get, I get followed by people um, through very separate spheres of my life. And, uh, you know, uh, on one hand, I have all of these like leftist politics stuff. And then I have like a Diedrich Bader uh, following me, uh, which is awesome, but it's just like I know he didn't follow me to get retweets from like 
uh, anarchist cells in Chicago, you know. <laughs> well, you know, vanilla ice follows me, so I'm not sweating it either. Mm, How about that? Good, good, good drop. So I'm doing, I'm doing okay too. All right, All right dude. <laughs> all right man jordan pull up. all right man <laughs> thank you thank you for coming on and thanks everybody for listening and please make sure to join us next time where myself and a very special guest are finally going to see who's watching docs back well that certainly was a lot and hey travis and jordan even remembered to mention inherent vice now and again still a little sad all the same the show is winding down and, like all things, is coming to an end. Which really is what this whole thing is all about, isn't it? Coming to an end and looking back over your shoulder. So what will we find over our shoulders next week? Well, we'll see what we can see. Next time on Increment Vice. <laughs>